The following Bowery Boys podcast is entirely too long. It's our hundredth episode. Give me a break. Episode 100 of the Bowery Boys. Robert Moses. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Greetings and welcome to the Bowery Boys 100th episode. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We made it. It's 100. It's so excited. This was two and a half years in the making. Can you believe, Tom, when we sat down to do that first podcast on Canal Street with a Macintosh garage band and a karaoke microphone and a dream that we would do 100 of these shows? Two and a half years later, we'd be sitting here with a. Macintosh garage <laughs> band. And They're not karaoke microphones, thank goodness. Please stick around, because at the end of the show, we have some special thank yous to all of those who have made this possible. Now, Greg, on to the subject of today's show, Robert Moses. How did we come about choosing him for this spectacular event? Well, as uh, some of our regular listeners will know, Robert Moses creeps up in the middle of virtually every other topic. <laughs> Unless it's like from New Amsterdam, where, of course, then Peter Stuyvesant takes over. Right. Um, Robert Moses has had his hands in almost every major project of the 20th century, at least, in some capacity, and has, of course, changed or altered those from the 19th century. Which makes him an obvious choice for this anniversary show. Um, it also makes him something of a challenge to cover in one podcast. So maybe we need to set some rules for understanding how we're going to do this. We were joking earlier that this podcast, if we wanted it to, could be 10 minutes, and it would just literally be reading a list verbatim of all the things he worked on, or it could be 15 hours, and then it still wouldn't cover everything. Of course, one of the greatest nonfiction books is about Robert Moses, and it's like 45,000 pages. So we obviously have a lot to say on the subject. Now, as one of, if not the most powerful man in New York City in the 20th century, luckily what this also does is give us sort of a brief history of New York in the mid-20th century. So, And I think that we have actually almost vilified him, or at least made him somewhat comedic. Uh, so it is interesting that we have an opportunity tonight to also cast him into maybe a more nuanced light. Uh, he is truly a Shakespearean character. Uh, so park yourself down, listener. And let us tell you about our friend Bob the Builder, Robert Moses. All right, so I just I I want to stress one more time <laughs> yes. that the uh, that the career of Robert Moses is so vast that uh, many of you listening out there might have your own personal pet Robert Moses story or a place or a highway or a parkway (laughs) that um, is close to your heart that we may not even mention, that we may not even get to, because there's a lot of stuff on our plate. So we apologize for that, but we're going to give you some resources at the end of this podcast in which you can find out more about Robert Moses. So without further ado, Tom... Instead of situating Robert Moses, I think we should just sort of... He's been situated. Let's launch into this adventure. Let's fall back to 1888 when Robert Moses was born in New Haven, Connecticut, to a German-Jewish family. Now, his father was Emanuel Moses, who had actually left Bavaria to move to the New World and was a very successful department store owner. And he was, he was married to Isabella Cohen, who was very well connected to society in New Haven. So that was a rather posh beginning. So in 1897, when he was nine years old, his father sold the department store business and cashed in in a big way, moved to New York into a five-floor brownstone that they bought with maids and the whole deal. And this was really where Robert grew up. In a lap of luxury, a little bit. Yes. He went off to great prep school. He attended Yale, uh, where he was, you know, popular. And he was a great student, graduated with honors, and was a big swimmer and a member of the track team. Swimmer, remember that, of course. Well, you've seen these, these early pictures of him. He's very He's brawny. Strapping. Yeah, yes, sure. strapping. 
It was also a year where he felt a bit of exclusion because there was there were limits as a Jewish boy. There were limits to how far he could go socially, which clubs he could join. So that really kind of ticked him off. Now, after Yale, he studied at Oxford, where he studied for two years and wrote a thesis on the subject of, what else, but a merit-based government job promotion system. A juicy subject, I'm sure. Um, and... And interesting that he would jump into politics at this time as well. well. Right. He was very politically aware. His mother was also coming from a very political family and progressive family. So, And when he came back, he got a master's in political science at Columbia. And so at 25, he had all the rights, pedigree, and was ready to go. And he had this whole sort of progressive kick. He was like an idealist, right? Yes, yes. He wanted to reform government because, remember... We're talking about a time in state government when Tammany Hall was still very much the norm, and he wanted to fight that kind of cronyism and corruption. Well, there was a lot to reform at this time, and a lot of reform movements were going on, but they just weren't enough. Well, he joined the Municipal Research Bureau, which was this progressive research group, where, by the way, Greg, he met a secretary from Wisconsin named Mary Louise Sin, and they would get married and have a wonderful life together for more than 50 years. While he was there, he worked on different ways to attack the Tammany Hall machine. But in 1918, a new governor came along named Al Smith, and his administration was very interested in Moses' ability to craft legislation and to work out all the details. For well, it. he was a genius at bill writing, at, const- at organization, at constructing right. these types of he things. He got it. And Al Smith wanted this because he was elected as someone who would change things and reform things. Unfortunately, the bill that he wrote didn't pass, and Al Smith lost the election in 1920. And with Al Smith losing... Well, Moses was out of a job. But, of course, Smith won again in 1922, and he brought Moses right back into Albany with him. And could actually elevate him into a new position now that there was a new term. And so while he was in Albany, he was doing things like organizing the state railroad system. But but already a lot of responsibility for someone who's fairly young still, right? Yes, he was quite young, and, and Al Smith said to him, Look, Moses, you can take any job you want. And Robert chose the parks. Um, he, wanted to, he wanted to overhaul those. He recognized all of the natural beauty that New York State had to offer from Long Island to upstate, and he wanted it better organized and better accessible by New Yorkers. And that was in 1924, when Smith named Robert the chairman of the New York State Council of Parks and the Long Island State Park Commissioner. Both of which were created for him. These entities did not exist. Now, is this also kind of weird that Moses has two positions at the same time? This will probably be the fewest number of positions (laughs) that he holds for 50 years. So this is kind of, this is a light load for him at this time. Now, So he, like, as you said, state parks, and he was truly a state park commissioner. But we, of course, will focus on the New York City part and Long Island. Now... I wish there were a, some a Long Island Bowery Boys, a Ronkonkoma Boys or something, a Wanta <laughs> Boys, but there's not. There are plenty of Fire but, Island Boys. But, it's, <laughs> but, but it is important for me to, to bring up Long Island because it was the home of his first successes, and it's also his first love. Like He lived for most of his life in Babylon on the South Shore of he Long Island. He loved the fact that he could run to the waters and go swimming or go out on his boat. N- not to bring up every single thing that he did in Long Island, but I'm going to bring up three key things, and one of them ties into this, to the boats and to the South Shore, and that would be, that would be the barrier beaches mm-hmm. that were right along the side. You know, so that there's the sort of the edge of the island, and then there's a, like a waterway, and then there's like another little thin layer of land that's right along the southern edge of Long Island. Now, on his weekends, he would walk along the sandy areas here. We'd have his dog there. He probably had like a sweater wrapped around his shoulders, a oh, J. Right. Crew. And you know, it was like rough and tumble. It was, he was definitely hiking through this. But he saw the potential of this whole area, this basically this western part of Fire Island. Fire Island at this time was just a Coast Guard station. So as the head of the new, uh, this new Parks Commission, he decided that he wanted to build a public beach, which would require literally building the beach, dredging sand up out of the water, raising the sea level. It was currently two feet below sea level. He needed to raise it up because he was going to be building 
all of these beautiful bathhouses, a boardwalk, all these different facilities along here. So he's building all these bathhouses and these beautiful Art Deco designs. He's getting into almost every detail of the design of the entire place. For the two beach houses, which are spectacular, um, he actually built them with some of the most expensive brick materials that were available mm-hmm. because he just wanted these things to just, wow, knock people out when they first saw them. And, if, and then most important, he had to build highways to get to the park, which is, was, of course, sort of the key of his whole plan for Long Island was to build parkways. Jones Beach opens in August of 1929. People loved it. 150 million people came in 1930. An incredible amount. That is an unbelievable amount of people for a place that wasn't there before, and literally no one went. No, of course, that's a lot of people, but it was, as you can imagine, only people with cars... In 1929. In 1929. You had to be fairly well off to have a car in 1929. Also, no buses because the overpasses to the parkways that he built here were too low. In fact, Mm -hmm. they're still too low. You can't take buses on the Southern State Parkway and the Northern State Parkway. Kind of scandalous if you think about it. That would only cater to certain kinds of people, people who didn't take this kind of mass transit. We'll talk about that later. Now, briefly, a couple other projects in Long Island that's parallel things that he would do in New York City. One of them would be the Northern State Parkway, which was this parkway that would run along the northern edge Mm -hmm. of Long Island. The southern side, there were all these farmers that um, he basically went in and took their land over, and also some unused government land. But in the northern part, it was the Gold Coast. It was where all of the rich, wealthy men of New York City had all their estates were here. So so they probably didn't feel so welcoming toward a new parkway blasting through their territory. Oh, absolutely not. They didn't want the riffraff driving through their backyards. So, but also at the same time, they had power, and Robert Moses, who would have so much power, wasn't quite there yet. So what's interesting with the Northern State Parkway is it's very jagged because it goes along the edge of these old estates. And one final thing I wanted to bring up, and then we can move on from Long Island, is this place called the Heckshire State Park, which is also on the south side of Long Island. This was an abandoned estate that Moses found. It was just no one was living there. And during his travels, his wanderings around, he found it and said, you know what? I'm going to make this a park. So he called the bulldozers. and He didn't have the land yet. The people around him were protesting it because they didn't want a park right next to that was abutting their own estates. This eventually got taken to court. But this is where Moses learns a lot of a lot of his tricks or from these types of incidents. He couldn't just seize this property. So he found found ways around this. One of them is in this case, he found this eccentric philanthropist by the name of August Heckscher, who we've, mm-hmm. who we've mentioned before in a Central, Central Park podcast. He was an, an old, very wealthy man who was very into parks. He just stepped in, donated money for this estate and got it and then donated it to the state of New York. So these some of these things are it's it's not really pretty like making all of these things. He's he's kind of annoying a lot of people. He's kind of a bully. He's kind of a bully, but what he's doing with all of these is he's winning the mainstream public opinion. Everyone's singing his praises because he is getting all of these things done. They're all for the for the public benefit. Right. And for these elected officials, he was gold around election time. If you could like latch your train onto Moses, as Al Smith said, quote, he may be a devil in May, but he's an angel in November. Oh, that um, Al. I had a question about those parkways that you mentioned. Yes. Because he was a parks commissioner, right? He wasn't actually charged with building the state's highways yet. No, so, the, no. So weren't these parkways really kind of a clever way to build a highway? When he would do this um, continually throughout his career, like create like the frailest of reasons <laughs> to make something else. So, I mean, these were arguably parks they were like greenery around and and, and in the early days they would have like picnic tables you could pull over on this parkway right but um yeah it's a it's a real these were sort of ribbon parks that just happened to have a road that went through them like this this is the arab era before people put quotations around words but (laughs) these are truly quotation park well i suppose that maybe you needed to take your car out for some exercise (laughs) you know like walking your dog Now, later governors after Al Smith didn't love Moses as much, but they liked the things that he did. So governors like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who actually 
disliked him greatly and would later as president dislike him even more (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) but the public loved him uh, and and as a matter of fact in new york in 1933 when they were when the republican party was trying to find someone to put up for mayor they even bandied about the name as robert moses to be the mayor of new york city now some political machinations in the background occurred and in fact they lifted up another person by the name of fiorello laguardia Now, before we get to LaGuardia's moment, I just wanted to mention the 1932 Governor Lehman at the time. That would be Herbert Lehman of the Lehman Brothers? Of the actual Lehman Brothers? Yes, related. Wow. Believe it or not. So the governor named Moses the chairman of the Emergency Public Works Commission for New York State. Now, what that meant was that basically Moses got to draft up all kinds of plans. He had started drafting up and filing away plans for, for future projects. Uh, they, they weren't funded. They weren't even necessarily legal. But he had the ideas down, and he was working ahead of schedule. This would become a, a chief asset of his, was just his preparedness to seize the moment. In 1933, the Triborough Bridge Authority was established, which we will get to mm-hmm. a little bit later. But also in 1933, uh, Mayor LaGuardia came into office, and he asked Moses if he would become the first five-borough parks commissioner. Before this point, all of the boroughs had their own parks departments, and so Moses, of course, because he was so good at consolidating power and and drafting up frameworks, was able to put that all together, consolidate the park system into one office, and then go whole hog— he was on a mission to restore the city's public spaces and expand the park. And we're talking about a time during the depths of the Depression. There are very few projects actually happening. Things could have easily fallen apart during the 1930s, easily. But instead, he hired all kinds of architects and workers. At one point, he had 2,000 parks projects happening at the same time. Things like, you know, fixing up the city's benches, to restoring the fountain in Washington Square Park, to redoing the zoo in Central Park. It was small things. It was large things. And, you know, parks is good politics, Mm -hmm. Greg. People love parks. They see parks. They understand where their money is going. In 1933, also... After Roosevelt's inauguration, there was the establishment of the Works Progress Administration, which meant that there was a tremendous amount of New Deal money to go around to cities, municipalities that had projects ready to go. Well, Like a job stimulus, and all of a sudden, there's thousands of jobs, and one man who can create thousands more just with the running off the top of his head. He had the shovel-ready projects. Shovel-ready, as they call them today. At one point, he actually had 80,000 people working for him. And New York was receiving a quarter of the federal dollars going to construction. That's a, well, because a lot of states didn't have these things on the ready. He also employed like all strata. I mean, he was employing like, the most well-known architects and engineers. And then employing the people who had to actually paint the park benches. And build these things, sure. He also developed a rather ruthless reputation, I would say. As you mentioned in Long Island, well, that just kept going um, in his park commissioner days in the city. When he wanted to get something done, he knew how to get it done. He knew because he had this much power. And by the way, I mean, he held multiple posts at the same time. At one point... They were all intertwined. Yeah, he had 12 posts. So this meant that the man had a tremendous amount of power and that if you double-crossed him... Well, you could find yourself or your company not doing business with the city in a big way. And do you know what his favorite thing to do when he was not getting his way? I mean, he took this straight out, straight from the page of a five-year-old girl. He would run into someone's office and he would threaten to quit. He would just say, well, you know what? Fine. I'm going to quit. Bye. He kept doing this throughout the entire, for decades. I mean, this was like an old trick of his. No one would ever take his resignation because, of course, you can't have Robert Moses quit. For most of his career, the press and people really loved him. On top of that, if he quit this one job, he could take his revenge on you with these five or six other positions that he had. Oh, that's right. But it worked for him, obviously. Another thing he would do is ridicule his critics publicly in the papers. He'd write horrible letters about people. He'd even... And this sounds like something out of, I don't know, some kind of tea party today. He'd question <laughs> their patriotism. Which is funny because, do you know, Tom, that he actually ran for governor in 1934 while all, this, all, all these him? projects are going on? Um, not so well because 
these tactics that he could use to get things done, to uh, produce this all this work and to produce all these important projects didn't work quite so well when he was on the campaign trail in front of actual people in which he had to answer questions and if you gave and if you gave him a question that he didn't like well, he didn't answer. He just ripped into you. Um, he was, as a matter of fact, so he ran for governor in 1934, and he lost so badly because he just was not good in front of people. As Francis Perkins said, he loves the public, not the people. Mm-hmm. So this, I believe, if, if I think you can start seeing now kind of what's shaping his um, his drive. Well, because he was also an urban planner, even though he would despise urban planners, but he, of course, was like the biggest one of them all. Of um, he had a way of looking from a bird's eye view down. The city to him was also a map that needed to be organized. It wasn't necessarily a collection of inhabitants and people and neighborhoods. But we'll get to that in a second. In the, let's rewind to his job as Parks Commissioner, mm-hmm. because one of the very important things that he did during the sweltering summer of 1936, he had constructed and opened during that year 10 very large swimming pools throughout New York City to cool off the city's youth and also to give some exercise to the adults. Remember, he was he, a big swimmer. He was a swimmer, so he so he saw this as a public good. Th- these were still his sort of aesthetically inclined days, and mm-hmm. he was building beautiful bathhouses for these pools. And these pools are still around yeah, today, McCarran of Park. So while he's doing all of this, he actually has, as you mentioned, his responsibilities as the head of the Triborough Bridge Authority, which, and it would be this massive linking of all the toll road properties in New York City and the highway system, and it would absorb all the parkway authorities. Now, but they've been talking about this bridge for decades, right? Yeah, the project actually, believe it or not, was something that started in 1916. But as Moses did with so many things, once he got his arms around it, it was a Robert Moses project. And in fact, it was actually defined him. Now, to, to quickly describe like what a public authority is, they're usually created for a very particular task, which are authorized by a government of some kind, a state or a city government. And it's paid for by bonds. And technically, it's supposed to end as soon as that property is paid for. That's not how Moses fixed the Triborough to work. He fixed it so that it would be a perpetually run company. It would be fueled by all the toll money from the Triborough Bridge. And tolls were kind of a new concept, right? Yeah, it it was. It was actually kind of quite lucrative. Well, it was unpopular at first. Politicians didn't think people would go for it, but when they saw how amazing the Triborough Bridge was and all these new properties that Moses was designing. They they went along with it, and I'm telling you, the Triborough Authority was was a piggy bank. It had it had money when the state and the local government were near bankrupt. It just had this large amount of money, and Moses was just raking it in. Now, this bri- the bridge itself, I should is not really, of course, one bridge. It's three bridges. Right. It's that one bridge goes over the East River, one over the Har- Harlem River, and one over the Bronx Kill, and they're all linked. By Randall's Island. Listen to the Randall's Island podcast for more information on the construction of that. And of course, Randall's Island is important to Robert Moses because wasn't that where he sort of situated his own powers? Robert Moses actually had his sort of base of operations right near the Triborough Bridge. You can, it's the building there is called the Robert Moses Administration Building, and it's very symbolic. This is actually a thought that I'm actually getting directly from Robert Caro, but I really liked it. It's symbolic of what Robert Moses was about because it was separated from the city. It was separated from city government. It was literally his own kingdom because, of course, to get there, if you didn't work for the government, you had to pay tolls. Mm. That was his little domain there. And from his window, I bet he could just watch the the tolls, the the cars just line up and go through in orderly fashion. The cash register just chinging. Ching, So it opened on July 11th of 1936. It was the largest Great Depression project of all of them. It was it was it cost over 60 million dollars, but it was an amazing success. And, and like I said, it made Robert Moses and gave him this huge pool of money that he could use on other projects that he wanted to to work on that he couldn't find federal or local or state money for. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values 
are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So he really has his hands full here. But in the midst of all of this, LaGuardia asks Moses if he would become the chair of the 1939 World's Fair Committee. Kind of a strange choice. It seems a little whimsical for Robert Moses. Well, but now Moses was, you know, don't sell him short. He was a fan of entertainment. He was a fan of opera, of classical music, and even a friend of band leader Guy Lombardo. I believe I did know that. I think he knew a, f- a few band leaders in his time. Now, what Moses didn't like was cheap entertainment. I guess that's what nothing I, I gaudy. meant. Nothing gaudy, nothing bawdy. For the World's Fair, Moses chose a heap of ashes in northern Queens, which he redeveloped into Flushing Meadows Corona Park. He also chose the theme, The World of Tomorrow. Among other things, General Motors came and built Futurama, which was this sort of dazzling demonstration of how a 20th century city should look. And of course, you can imagine all of these super tall apartment complexes and the highways zipping in, sometimes through the buildings themselves, and what kind of effect this had on Robert Moses, the planner. If he didn't have the automobile bug before this, then the World's Fair certainly infected him with it. He did, after all, believe that, and I believe this is a direct quote, cities are created by and for traffic. (laughs) But he really believed that the automobile was the future, automobiles were good, they were with us to stay, that public transportation was passe, it was slow, it was awkward, and it was totally a sign of a dying urban environment. And in order to survive, cities had to get with the times. They had to build roads, they had to let people get around. This wasn't just Robert Moses thinking this. A lot of people thought this. The difference is, Robert Moses was the one with the power, and right. he was also surrounding and the cash and the cash, and he was surrounding people who thought the same way. So he had this grand plan that he was what he was going to do with New York City, and we're going to touch on that a little bit later. But one of the key early things that he did to New York that were involving highways or parkways, if you will, um, was what he called the West Side Improvement. This is basically at, starts at 72nd Street on the West Side, on the Upper West Side. His goal was to cover the tracks of the New York Central Railroad that were running from there up, you know, upstate. Sure. Um, uh, he wanted to create a parkway that would run alongside Riverside Park to connect to the West Side Highway in Lower Manhattan and connect it to the George Washington Bridge and to all these other road and highway ideas that he would soon come up with. This would, of course, become the Henry Hudson Parkway, which, of course, gracefully travels along the shoreline there. It's tucked right underneath the riverside. You can't even see it when you're in the park. And this is, of course, why also when you're taking the Amtrak from Penn Station up the Hudson to go upstate, you're in a tunnel for a while until you emerge out the other side. Oh, right. You're emerging, by the way, at 125th Street. There's that like area where there's actually no park, right. and, they, and the, the parkway's exposed and everything. Now, what critics have lobbed at Moses is that, oh, well, what's at 125th Street? Right. Harlem. Harlem, a predominantly black neighborhood in the 1930s. And so um, people have accused Robert Moses of, of cutting corners in a prejudicial way here. Not benefiting the people of that particular neighborhood. So anyway, the the parkway goes all the way up, and then he built the Henry Hudson Bridge in 1936, which links Manhattan to the Bronx on its most northern end. Now, to do this, he has to like drive the highway through and build the bridge on top of the last true forest in Manhattan, which was at Inwood Park. There was community protests, and there were a lot of consultants who actually found a more feasible way to actually build this bridge and preserve that forest, but 
he didn't listen to them. He didn't care. Did it anyway. It's a beautiful bridge. Don't get me wrong. But that last natural forest, he had basically had to plow through it. It was, after all, more important to get people in their cars where they needed to go. An example of where Moses actually didn't get his way was in the creation of the Brooklyn Battery Bridge. The Brooklyn Battery Bridge, you might yeah, be wondering? I don't, I don't know that bridge, Greg. No, we know the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, because that actually exists. Moses had, no pun intended, tunnel vision when it came to this. Mm. What he wanted to do is that he wanted a, a bridge that would literally cleave the New York Harbor. It would literally come from Battery Park to Red Hook, this gigantic bridge. Mm. And, you know, and, and vessels in the water would have to just go under this large bridge. And one of the anchorages would be in, in Governor's Island. It sounds awful. To do this, he would have to destroy Castle Clinton, Castle Garden, which is an old fort. And um, another podcast. And, and another podcast, which at the time was the New York Aquarium. The community leaders revolted against this. But Moses, being Moses, went ahead and started ripping down the aquarium and ripped down a lot of the modern features. And all that was left was basically this sort of original fort encampment. The federal government stepped in and they nixed this bridge idea. This is where Roosevelt sort of like is like getting a little bit of sweet revenge. So it forced him to build a tunnel. Well, I believe that Roosevelt's rationale was that it could be bombed. This is just in the buildup to the war in 1940. So he said, well, that could be bombed. It would be an easy target. And what would that do to New York City? Of course, I don't know how that hold that argument holds water when you think that well, I suppose any of the bridges could have been bombed. It it really doesn't. It was it may have just been some sort of vengeful games between these two incredibly powerful men. <laughs> but we're, I'm kind of glad that bridge isn't there. Um, but this would embitter Moses. It would make him even more irascible, more difficult. And but what was his uh, payback? His payback, you know, that aquarium, which was actually quite popular, which you know he took out of Castle Clinton, he threw it, and I'm threw it all the way out on Coney Island, where of course, like many of the people who went there, couldn't enjoy it out there um, because Coney Island had sort of like had gone past its heyday a little bit, and it was difficult to. It was, it was more difficult a long to get trip. to. Yeah. More difficult to get to. I mean. All right, so you have us up through the early 40s, Greg, and we must note that at this point, there are so many projects underway. There are so many things on the table and so many construction projects actually happening that we can't really do them all justice. And actually, during World War II, some other projects were put on, put on pause because, of course, the nation was f- focused on the war. Well, from now, here on out, we're going to start talking about projects that lasted like over decades, and they all overlapped with each other. So I think we're just going to sort of take this by categories. I'm going to jump right to 1951, actually, when Moses was sort of the chief planner behind the United Nations. For example, <laughs> that was a project that actually pulled together almost all the big names of uh, of uh, New York power at that time. And he lobbied hard to get it placed in New York City. And then once New York won out, he had to choose a site. Originally, he thought that it would be nice to put it out in Queens. Flushing Meadows. Flushing Meadows. Ultimately, though, he settled, of course, on 42nd and the East River Drive. It was constructed from 1949 to 1950. And John D. Rockefeller Jr. actually gave $8.5 million to buy the land. I do believe, listen to our podcast on the UN headquarters, that that was a Le Corbusier project. Maybe he had something to do with it. I think we even talk about air conditioners. (laughs) Le Corbusier. Now, in 1952, he undertook a project. He had many different, and for years had different projects for expressways cutting through Manhattan. As we've said, he wanted to move traffic faster in the city. In 1952, he had a plan to hustle the traffic straight down south through Washington Square Park, where it currently came to a standstill as it made its way through or around. And this was a time when you actually could drive through it, correct? Well, th- there was or- a... There was a bus turnaround. A bus turnaround, right. Sorry. And otherwise, the traffic went around the edges of it. But he wanted to widen the road around the park and, of course, have an actual highway that went through the park itself. I mean, Greg, it was just a park. <laughs> And he was a parks commissioner, and this is what he was going. This is this was his grand plan. Yeah, maybe he was selling it as a parkway. <laughs> he really wanted that traffic to join up with the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which we'll get to in a second. Up until this point, there had been protests 
people were voicing concern. They were beginning to, yes. Yeah. The, the, vis- the visage of Robert Moses as this uh, sort of do-it-all, can-do, like perfectionist, like everything he's doing is saving the city, is beginning to crack a little. There was a powerful coalition of residents around Washington Square Park who banded together to help save the park. Now, most notably, uh, there was a woman named Shirley Hayes, who was an actress, who drummed up a lot of protest and anger, and she staged events, and she made very powerful allies like Eleanor Roosevelt, who lived near the park. And ultimately, she just stood right up to Moses. She also drafted another nearby resident over on Hudson Street, Jane Jacobs. Mm-hmm. Jane was a writer turned activist and architectural critic for Architectural Forum magazine. Jane took on Moses and had been taking on Moses in a number of pieces she had been writing for Architectural Forum. She was highly critical of his public housing and Title I housing that we'll get to in a second, just how drab it was and how it was breaking up the cityscape. Jane did not believe, like Moses did, that the traffic made the city. Jane believed that neighborhoods made the city and that neighbors made the city. So she was a very powerful force. In it, was, it was like a micro look at the city versus the macro look, which is what Moses depended on, yes, relied on. The bird's eye versus the Hudson Street window. Yes. What I love is that Moses was actually making some concessions here. You know, he was coming back with design alterations, saying, fine, you know, we'll slow the traffic down around the park, through it, we can maybe whittle it down, we we can have some overpasses for pedestrians so that they can get from one side to the other of the park. But he, he made a couple concessions, and Shirley Hayes, bless her, went hardball <laughs> when others were willing to actually compromise with him and said, no, we don't want smaller roads through it, we don't want any roads through it. We don't want any traffic in the park. Ultimately, they won. They won. In 1959, Washington Square Park was closed for good to traffic. If you haven't heard enough just now, we have a podcast (laughs) on that too. Now, when he wasn't down in Washington Square Park, he was up at Columbus Circle, where he ripped down some of the old buildings that were around uh, Columbus Circle, some tenements and some stores. And he built, in 1956, the lovely Coliseum, which was New York City's first convention space. Now, I remember when I first moved to the city, the mm. Coliseum was still was still up. Yeah, um, looming and I, large. And I mean, I didn't know a lot about New York history at that time. I didn't know a lot about architecture. But I knew that that was one of the ugliest buildings <laughs> I had ever seen in my entire life. And Greg, you may just not have been a fan of the international style. <laughs> An international pile, more like it. <laughs> Well, the space had four exhibition floors and a 26-floor office tower, and it was demolished in 2000 so that Time Warner could build uh, their office Mm -hmm. towers and uh, shopping space. At the same time, 1956, Moses took on the project of Lincoln Center. I mean, it's really just kind of too much. You know? <laughs> well, the fact it's almost like he's like literally doing whatever he wants, pointing to something, and it's happening, right. or, or or latching on to an already existing project. You know, he didn't just believe that the city needed highways. He believed that the city, in order to survive, needed affordable middle class housing. It also needed to attract people in from the suburbs. It needed world class cultural institutions that people could get to in their cars. And so he wanted to give a home to the city's foremost cultural performing arts institutions, like the Metropolitan Opera and New York Philharmonic. And he also believed wholeheartedly in the power of educational institutions to bring in people and to gussy up a neighborhood, which is why he was always fighting for and negotiating with New York University around Washington Mm. Square, and also in the case of the Lincoln Center developments with Fordham Law School. It's almost like he saw school and culture as a way to get people to drive on his highways to get to those places. Oh. And he could collect a toll at the same time. Of course. (laughs) Now, he used the new urban renewal uh, powers to wipe out acres of tenements that were at Lincoln Center. You know, thousands of people who had actually lived there. Fordham Law School was the first to open in 1962 in that whole Mm -hmm. complex. And that really deserves a podcast of its own. (laughs) 
now we're going to jump back here a little. Like I said, we're going to we're going to be doing because all these things are happening at once. Back in the 1940s, um, Robert Moses was art was given a role in housing. Correct? Yes. In 42, New York State passed the Redevelopment Companies Law that said that a city could use the laws of eminent domain to clear housing for the public good. And the intention would be then that private developers could come in and develop affordable housing, and this would really assist the cities in their uh, fight against the suburbs to, to maintain the middle class and the middle class tax base that was, of course, fleeing. After the war, there's a national housing shortage because the population of the United States increases greatly. A lot of people are moving into New York. A lot of people are immigrating into the United States. The federal government in 1949 passes the Housing Act and Urban Renewal Program, okay. also called the Slum Clearance Program, a little more ineloquently. During this time, Robert Moses would then be appointed the head of the Housing Authority. This is in shorthand often called Title I. Which was the same concept, right? That the city had the authority to label entire areas, quote, slums, and then raise them, sell off the land to private developers who would guarantee that there'd be middle-class housing. I mean, this was an extraordinary power to give cities this particular time. The funds would be then delivered to these cities when whole collections of blocks were destroyed. This wasn't just to, like, destroy buildings here or there. It was to wipe out whole areas. The unintended consequence of this is sometimes they were just they were destroying housing in areas and, and then building up new places that, that were actually less housing units. Like, they were sometimes destroying more apartment and living mm. and more dwellings than they were actually building sometimes. It, it was just, quote nicer. Well, not to mention the unintended consequence, or maybe the intended consequence, is that you were losing a population that couldn't afford to live in these middle-class housing units. So, as overseen by Moses, he would, using political favoritism to grant plots to some of his favorite developers, the new developments that would be built would be for like middle or even higher-income families. So, you'd clear away a, a, a group of housing developments that were f- lower classes, and build up something else for the middle class. As a result, what would happen is when one area would be cleared for housing, a new neighborhood, usually the one adjoining it, would then become the new overcrowded slum. So all he was doing is sort of like pushing the problem. He wasn't really eradicating the problem. There was, of course, something even more sinister under all of this. There was a lot of racism and applied racism during this program. Now, prior to Title I, of course, we can talk about... Stuyvesant Town, mm-hmm. which had a racial segregation policy. Which is just incredible. And I think that many people listening to this podcast may not even know about this. In the 1940s. And as a matter of fact, the New York Supreme Court backed up this decision and well, saying that they could actually do this. And this was because the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company was brought in to finance and to really run this entire development process. And they would only do it if the, sti- the city stood behind them on a requirement that only allowed whites in uh, as the tenants. And Moses believed that it made good financial sense because with a project like this, where 24,000 people were going to get housing, you know, who else but MetLife was g- willing to take up a project right. like this mm-hmm. and put up the money for it? So if this is what they required. He was going to make sure that they had their way. So there was a flourish of this kind of housing activity in the 50s and 60s. As a matter of fact, Robert Moses is probably in charge of building more housing in New York than any individual ever. But these large mega blocks would of of all these apartment buildings would be very bland, very similar style buildings, and the 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 ground floors would not have shops or restaurants. It promoted this very banal, uniform style, very dehumanizing, as the writer John Cheever once said quote, about these very apartment buildings from the 50s and 60s, quote, their bleakness is absolute. No man has ever dreamed of a city of such monotonous severity. Um, well, you know, he didn't really concern himself with the aesthetics, which is ironic given his earlier tendencies to get in on all of the little detailing of his bathhouses and pools and whatever, because he would choose the private developers and then let them make all their own design choices. And it's also striking because he's doing this in a city which just two generations previously went through a city beautiful phase and prided prided itself in its aesthetic and its sense of place. And he also thought of himself as a modern day Baron von Hausmann, you know, of Paris who who really modernized Paris while making it 
what we consider today to be perhaps the world's most beautiful city. So <laughs> Moses thought he was doing the same thing. And, you know, he still believed that neoclassical designs personally were beautiful mm-hmm. to him. So he couldn't have thought that these buildings were that beautiful. Now, as for the people, he moved out of these buildings. They would sometimes have a very hard time with relocating, and they often had little say in where they were being relocated to. For instance, a lot of black families were forced to relocate to very particular neighborhoods, let's say Bedford-Stuyvesant or Harlem. Sometimes people just wouldn't have a say in where they really wanted to live if they didn't have enough money. And this it was kind of slimy, too, because he let the private companies who were in charge of development also be in charge of the relocation. So in certain cases, like Lincoln Center, they did a better job of putting people in appropriate housing, you know, working with them. But in so many of the other Title I cases, people were not handled very well. And in the cases of some of these developments, it was just out-and-out corruption. Like, for example, um, the development that was to be called Manhattan Town. Like, this was from the late 1950s. It was this little neighborhood on the Upper West Side around 100th Street. It was slated for slum clearance, and Moses gave it over to these developers, who then promptly sat on the land for five years. What they did is they just collected the rent from people. They didn't do a thing with it. They just let it sit there. It basically built the city for all this money. Which is, again, ironic, because what Moses was fighting in this whole slum clearance thing was that the so-called slumlords were actually making a lot of money. He was up against their interests because there were a lot of people paying rents in those slums, so they were cash cows. And what's amazing is this is probably one of the very first Moses projects that the press actually looked into and investigated. And this whole thing was exposed through a series of articles. Now, keep in mind, like the press up until this time had a blind eye towards Moses. As a matter of fact, the New York Times in particular is a, a publication that, that was for the longest time very cozy with Robert Moses. With Mosey. And, and, with cozy with Mosey and didn't, and criticized him very little within its pages. It would take decades for them to sort of turn around. And then, Tom. Yes. So if all of that doesn't overwhelm you, the amount of things that he took on during this period of time. We have some champagne around here, right? (laughs) Yes. We might need something harder after this. His highway plans. Robert Moses, almost from the first time as a young man, he entered New York. He had this great grand plan of highways that would link all of New York City together. Link it through highways, would link it through bridges, would link it to federal highways. In fact, the things that he created had to because he wanted that federal money to use right. to build all these highways. Well, he had the plans ready. Like I said, I mean, he was a master at combining local money, state money, federal money, private money, tri-borough money, all of these things to build what he wanted to do. You know, sometimes, of course, to come up with these ideas, it would require cutting an expressway through a heavily populated area. Now, keep in mind... Before this, Moses was doing this in Long Island, but it was, you know, mowing through farms. It was cutting around wealthy estates. It was dealing with local politicians. Or it was, right, covering up a railroad track and building a road above it. This would involve a mass expulsion of thousands of people throughout these decades, in the 40s, all the way up into the late 60s. Some of these highways, Tom are, for instance, like the Gowanus Parkway, which is in Brooklyn, which is actually the highway that you take when you come out of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Yes. You get on to the, the Gowanus Parkway, and it's incredible. It's literally like hovering high in the sky. To build this, they ha- he had to plow through some vibrant neighborhoods. Many of them were completely blighted because of this like huge, shadowy, concrete mess that was now floating overhead. For instance, like Sunset Park, which is still a nice neighborhood today, but it was a much more lively neighborhood than it was. He, he basically tore out the main thoroughfare of the entire neighborhood so that he could build an approach to the Gowanus Parkway. Even when he was told that he could actually, if he just moved it one block over, one block over were a bunch of warehouses where no one lived, and it was a prostitution district. But he left that alone, plowed through the main thoroughfare. There's also the Belt Parkway, which was designed to link all the Long Island parkways, and it would, of course, lead to the Triborough. It was, of course, literally like a belt going up through Brooklyn, Queens, and then back down again. The best-looking part of this is, of course, the Shore Parkway, which it's goes beautiful. right along the edge, the southern edge of Brooklyn. Oh, by the way, Greg, doesn't that pass a certain Verrazano Narrows Bridge? 
It it does. That's which a, he built. Which he also, which we didn't even mention. <laughs> which he also built. Last of but not least, of course, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, which uh, which he built in 1939. Or I mean, this would take many years to build, but this was the key date, which would connect the Gowanus with the Triborough. This almost required the destruction of much of Brooklyn Heights. Believe it or not. The residents of that fine neighborhood, of course, they fought back. And because of this, Moses then built this promenade, which is, of course, a big feature of Brooklyn Heights. Which, of course, just covers up the BQE. But then there is, of course, the Bronx, which really got hit with all of these highways and expressways. There's a whole matrices, in fact, of this gravity-defying highways throughout there. I was even on it this past weekend. I went upstate. It's literally like just a huge net of of highways going north, south, east, west, connecting with dozens of bridges all over the place. At one point, like I would, I looked out the window, and I, I couldn't even see the ground. It was just like other elevated highways at different levels. It was almost like a MC Escher drawing. Uh, <laughs> Almost like something from the mind of Le Corbusier. <laughs> Almost, yes, perhaps. A lattice work, if you will. But certainly there were people who lived there before. And so this is where the sad tale of the Cross Bronx Expressway. And I would say this is probably the most notorious story that's floated around Robert Moses because he basically got away with murder, murder of a neighborhood, several neighborhoods, as a matter of fact. The Cross Bronx Expressway is one mile. It connects the Triborough with the western side of New York and the George Washington Bridge and beyond and all the many other highways. He, he built all this through very active neighborhoods. Um, like, for instance, it crosses the Grand Concourse, which is the Great Boulevard through the Bronx, which they had to support up so that they could build this. Mm. So it went underneath. This project began in the late 1940s and was constructed through the 50s and the 60s, and the last work was actually finished in 1972. But what this did was made a total mess of the South Bronx. It would actually contribute to the utter desolation that would occur here in the 1970s. Moved 60,000 people, you know, clearing blocks and blocks of tenements, and they weren't even all slum neighborhoods. They were, some of them were middle-class neighborhoods, and most of the tenants were black and Jewish tenants. The one neighborhood in particular, East Tremont, the whole neighborhood was almost completely erased. People were given 90 days to vacate their houses, so they would empty these... 90 days. 90 days, yes. Now, these were just be threat letters that wrote, like, he would. He wanted to instill a little fear in people. Like, you had 90 days to get out of there, or we're just going to start bulldozing, because he would do that. He has done that. They would empty out all these buildings of people so that they would be abandoned, but then it would take years to sometimes demolish these, because, of, co- of course, Moses, being Moses, he worked too far ahead, and sometimes he didn't even have the permits, and didn't even have the purchasing power for the right-of-way to, to get onto the Cross Bronx. A total disaster, a very well-documented story. I, I recommend people look further into it, because there's lots of heartbreak, lots of tragic stories behind some of the people who had to move. Was there a way to handle this differently? Like, the Cross Bronx is great, but Mo- what Moses didn't do is he didn't listen to counterpoints. For instance, a lot of people had actually suggested a route through one particular very densely populated area that would have actually had it gone two blocks south, and it would have been along the edge of a park. And although the, the, the peacefulness of that park might have been disrupted, disrupted slightly, um, a lot of people would have still had their homes. Didn't, didn't do it. It stands as a, especially as we as we saw what happened in New York in the 1970s with all the urban blight and with all the crime and how terrible the Bronx was. This basically had that been fated to happen through all the other elements of New York history. This pushed it right over the edge. But this was only the beginning of his plan. He had all of these other ideas of cutting through other populated areas, and some of them came about, and some of them didn't. The ones that didn't are hard to imagine. They're, they're quite straightforward, but it's just hard to imagine what the city today would be like. There was the Mid-Manhattan Expressway that would have shot across 30th Street. Imagine that. Okay, 30th Street. Because really what he wanted to do was to go from the Hudson, the Henry Hudson Drive, straight over to the East River Drive. And he wanted to give also access from the the West Side Tunnels to the East River Bridges. And he didn't want these traffic lights. He didn't want all the distractions no, of no, neighborhoods and No, this is a city of the future. Yes. You need to be able to fly through these cities. 
That was Mid-Manhattan Expressway. It never went anywhere. The Cross-Harlem Expressway. At 125th Street? That would have been at 125th Street and would have actually, instead of elevated like the 30th Street, it would have been at street level, which would have just... Say goodbye to the Apollo. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's like, that's the heart of Harlem. Like, that's such a busy neighborhood today to imagine it as a, like, a highway. Yes. Madness. One that did get completed was the Trans-Manhattan Expressway, which connects the George Washington Bridge with the Cross Bronx Expressway. And that was completed in 1962. And as you know, that is no parkway. There are no beautiful <laughs> little trees lining that piece of concrete. No, there's no shrubbery. So we're now decidedly in the 1960s, and another one of his proposals was for the Lower Manhattan Expressway, sometimes referred to as Lomax. Lomax. Now, this made a lot of sense from his eagle view of the city. (laughs) He wanted to connect the Henry Hudson Parkway with the Williamsburg and Manhattan Bridges. How was he going to do that? I mean... You know how hard it is to get from the west side to the east side and over the bridges? I mean, it's uh, I'm not going to lie, it is difficult. Yes. We've all been stuck on Canal Street. A Lomex would have made it easier. That's true. Now, can you imagine, had he actually proceeded with Lomex, it would have taken out Broom Street. Gone. From left to right, basically. Yes. Well, it, the idea was that for 14 blocks, just 14, through Soho and Little Italy, there would be an, this enormous elevated expressway. It would have wiped out 800 businesses and forced the relocation of 1,972 families. And in some cases, this elevated highway would have actually gone through buildings. I mean, at least well, as the there plan. Were, right. <laughs> <laughs> the, there were so many plans uh, about Lomex. You know, it became this huge fight. And in fact, Greg, we should talk about the books that we read, but the book that I read, Anthony Flint's new book, Wrestling with Moses, deals with this, with the battle between the activists and Robert Moses over the construction of actually Washington Square Park, but also Lomax. And they actually got pretty far with this proposal, right? I mean, it was like almost a certainty at some point. Well, it was approved by the city's board of estimates, which was like city council on September 15th, 1960. And the funding was all in place. They really didn't have to pay very much to get this huge federally funded expressway to cut straight through the heart of it. Everybody else was doing it. All the other cities were. Sure. Why wasn't New York? It wasn't considered radical. However, of course, the residents were really peeved by this, and Jane Jacobs comes back into this with full gusto and fights this plan tooth and nail, and she wins over residents, prominent politicians, candidates for office, journalists. She gets them on her side as she campaigns to stop Lomax. And it helps when new mayor John Lindsay comes in, because he really has an ear to their needs a lot more than some of the prior mayors who were sort of bent over Robert Moses's knee. So finally, on December 11th, 1962, after a six-hour special session of the Board of Estimate, there was a unanimous vote to reject the Lower Manhattan Expressway. But all of this had happened after years of planning. It had been in the paper for years, which meant that for untold numbers of businesses that were along this route, along Broom Street's, They couldn't get loans from the banks. They couldn't get any kind of funding. People couldn't get money necessarily to buy and sell their apartments and such. I mean, imagine the havoc that it caused for all of these people along Broom Street. By the way, that would have shot above Broom Street, knocking down all the buildings on both sides, Mm -hmm. down to the Bowery, where it would one part would branch off to the north and then run along Delancey Street to the Williamsburg Bridge, and the other would shoot straight down to cross the Manhattan Bridge. And actually, part of it would go underground around Christie Street so that it could clear the subways. That part was actually built. So a piece of Lomex was actually constructed. (laughs) Add all of this up and all the countless things that we didn't even get to. And we know we're talking the late 50s, 60s. People are starting to get sick of Robert Moses. They're over him. And so it just takes little things to build up to a whole. So then came the World's Fair of 1964, 65, also a podcast. But I don't think we underscore enough in that particular podcast, Tom, is how 
that really pushed Moses along to the end here because it was a financial disaster. Every time someone would criticize him, he would come out and he would complain and he would moan to people and he was like not pleasant to the whole process. His most famous quote, in fact, came out during this particular time, which was, those who can build, those who can't criticize. Mm. I should mention also around this time that Moses' wife, Mary, dies of cancer in 1966. One month later, Moses marries another woman, also named Mary, one month later. We're just going to let that sit there on the shelf. So he was still, he was still the head of the Triborough Authority at this time and would be there until 1970. But all of his other responsibilities had slowly fallen off and had either been taken away from him or just sort of had dissolved. He's also in his 70s at this point. Politicians, both on the state and local level, are seeing the Triborough as this mound of money, and things are not going well in the city. Uh, the city is actually nearing, well, near bankruptcy, of course, in the 1970s. The mayor, John Lindsay, tries to wrest control of the Triborough Authority from, from Robert Moses and, and tries to merge it with the New York Transit Authority, which is, of course, which controls the trains and buses in the city. Now, Moses rebuffs him and Lindsay fails in this. However, shortly after, the governor tries the same thing. Now, who happens to be the governor in New York in the 1960s at this time? Tell me. One Nelson Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. That would be, a, that would be of course, the sprightly, ambitious second son of J.D. Rockefeller Jr., Moses's problem, his argument for merging it with the New York Transit Authority, and by the way, he hated public transit, so this is like a slap in the face for him, but also what he claimed was that what the, the Triborough was supported by bonds, and by combining it with the Transit Authority, you were actually breaking the terms of these original bonds. So it would be illegal. I.e., by encouraging subway travel, you would actually lower the value of the bridge bonds because then it would discourage automobile travel like it's so it's such a cynical uh viewpoint but might have technically been right but this is what's amazing this is what it takes something an extrange weird coincidence to really unseat moses here's why the bondholders in this situation would have had to collectively go to court in order in order for this to be a real case in the contract for these bonds it was stated that the bank that would represent the bondholders was chase manhattan bank Who was in charge of Chase Manhattan Bank in the 1960s? David Rockefeller, the brother of the governor. So check, mate. With all of this hovering and Moses probably realizing that he was not going to be able to survive this, he essentially agrees to a reduced role on the brand new compiled Metro Transit Authority. And the MTA is born with the merging of these two groups, of the Transit Authority and the Triborough Authority. He st- but he, he still had sort of honorific power. But then what happened in 1974 was the publication of Robert Caro's The Power Broker. Now, Caro was a reporter for Newsday newspaper, which up until the very end was still singing Robert Moses' praises. But Caro was an investigative reporter. This is the early 70s. You have Watergate. Um, this is also the birth of investigative journalism. So he, he wrote this book over the course of several years, even interviewed Robert Moses. A bleak, unflattering look of no, I don't can't imagine caustic. A, a caustic. I can't imagine a a book this well written has ever been done on anyone before and been so dire. You know, I mean it's a fantastic book to read about the history of New York City. And for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. Yes. It would ruin Robert Moses' reputation. It would sort of set the tone for conversations about Robert Moses. Moses would return to Babylon in Long Island. He would be very bitter. He would make scant public appearances, and then Moses died on July 29th of 1981 at age 92. So, here we are at the end. We obviously need to wrap this up, (laughs) but I feel as if we just need to take a second and think about the legacy that he has left, because we are all so affected by the changes that Robert Moses, in his tenure, in his various positions of power, brought to the city— What can we say? What haven't we already said? (laughs) 
what's amazing about about his legacy is that you can look look at it from one angle and think, well, I'm so glad he built those things. Some of these things are so crucial. Like I, I wouldn't be living here if we didn't have some of these things. Like it, yes. like it just he contributes to New York life in the way that no one else does. You can also look at a lot of the things he did as destroying New York and like really ripping into the fabric and the ideas that have they had they come to fruition would have destroyed it further. And so he's one of these people, it's almost like a Rorschach. Anyone can kind of look at it and how your feelings of New York or how, you know, your philosophies kind of come into play when you sort of look at his life. And I'll also throw this out at you, Greg. Robert Moses spent his life fighting for the preservation of New York City. He fought to keep the middle class here in a way that Well, nobody has as much power now as he had back then, but who else is fighting for middle-class housing in all of the boroughs? The story is the story of 20th century New York. So whether you like it or not, whether you see the things that happened in New York during those decades as being beneficial or being horrible or being a terrible place to live or being fantastic, all of those things also apply to Robert Moses and his philosophies. You mentioned Robert Caro's uh, The Power Broker. I will also just mention a great book, Robert Moses in the Modern City, The Transformation of New York, edited by Hilary Ballin and Kenneth Jackson. It was actually the subject of an expo at Columbia and out at the Queens Museum. I believe you made it out there. I did, and it was it was incredible. And it was it, it was interesting because I was sort of used to being seeing Robert Moses in a negative light. And then this show didn't shy away from some of that, but it really put right in your face like all of the dozens of right. important works that he was involved with and, and helped get done because he had um, this motivation to do so. And Greg and I both read Anthony Flint's new Wrestling with Moses, How Jane Jacobs Took on New York's Master Builder and Transformed the American City. A fabulous, fun read. Now I would just like to say, as our 100th episode draws to a close. Well, Tom, that it's been a pleasure to do these podcasts with you and many more in our future. Well, it's been a great pleasure to do it with you, Greg. We had no idea two and a half years ago when we sat down to do that first ill-conceived podcast that we would make it to 100. We we didn't know if we didn't make it to five. We didn't know if what we were doing <laughs> was of interest to people. Um, we didn't know if we were doing it well. Uh, the amount of comments and support that we've gotten from people is so heartfelt and we totally appreciate it you know when you listen back to the earlier episodes and maybe we were even doing this 10 15 ago we would say at the end if you like what you hear go on itunes and write a review (laughs) and maybe we'll get notice and that helps bump up our ratings and it 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 does and it did it did did. and it gave us exposure to a greater number of listeners so thank you to everybody who wrote reviews. And and have been friends on Facebook and have written us emails. And you should all know that your support and the ideas that you've given us, we are, like, as we launch ourselves forward into the future, we have some projects cooking up that I think that you'll all enjoy. Visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I'll have some pictures of Robert Moses, some of his projects, and I'll also have links to this massive two-week project that I just did on the blog called A History of New York City in 100 Buildings, which is inspired by a BBC podcast um, called A History of the World in 100 Objects. This is New York via Buildings. I'm sure these will be falling off the front page in a couple days, so I'll have links on the side. I'd also like to say thank you to our sponsor, DuroCheapo.com, and actually, as I'm the editor of Eurocheapo, I should say thank you to my business partner and people who I work with on Eurocheapo for getting behind the Bowery Boys from the beginning and being supportive when I need to take off a little bit earlier to record and for listening to me ramble on at work about Robert Moses. <laughs> and finally, to our friends and partners, uh, thank you for putting up with our meandering conversations about the, you know, intricacies of history of various structures and people. Because, you know, a Saturday night dinner with the Bowery Boys can sometimes (laughs) turn into a long conversation about... Peter Stuyvesant. (laughs) Peg leg Pete. So, thank you. On that note, I will be back in two weeks with a much shorter show (laughs) on something that's a lot more gentle. And I'll be back soon thereafter. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. (laughs) 